you knew with us this morning, we have been working our way through the Apostles' Creed. Line by line, what does it say? What does that mean? Where are we getting this from Scripture? Uh, this week, as you can probably tell from uh, the songs that we've sung, we are on that line of the Creed that says Jesus was crucified, that he died, and was buried. So before we examine this line, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do confess this morning with the saints of old, as Christians have for thousands of years, that Jesus Christ died, was crucified, and he was buried. Lord, this is the center of our faith. Pray that today that you would, by your word, Illuminate for us what this means, how significant it is. Give us understanding, Lord. May we see with with clarity the power and the wisdom of the cross of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we confess together, when we recite the creed together, and we confess that Jesus was crucified, that he died, that he was buried We're saying he actually died, that he didn't faint, that he didn't swoon and then wake up later. He actually physically died. And if we were in a a, a Muslim setting where the argument is that he did not die, then we would spend the bulk of our time this morning saying, yes, he did, (laughs) over and over again and showing evidence that he died, but we're not in that context. We do believe and we do confess that Jesus did die. History shows us that clearly. And we also understand that we're saying more than simply that he died. Because just as we saw last week, just as Jesus' suffering was necessary for our salvation, we know so was his death. And the Bible says a lot about his death. In fact, this, this week, as I was hoping to narrow down a text to, to preach from, because that's my preference, that's usually what we do here, it's, it's a lot easier on the preacher, and it's a lot easier for, for you to, to just walk through a text together. But I kept running into the problem, wherever I went in Scripture, that whatever text I choose, I would be saying too little about what was accomplished at, at Christ's cross the death of Christ. And think about it. Paul told the Corinthian church, the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he told them that as long as he was with them in Corinth, that he preached nothing except Christ and him crucified. Paul was there a year and a half. So if Paul spent a year and a half in one city preaching about the centrality of the cross to to the Christian faith, I cannot pretend that I am going to say everything there is to say about the cross from one text or in one sermon on a Sunday morning. So rather than working from one text and rather than trying to say everything, we're going to say as much as we can systematically. We're going to skip a stone across the New Testament and just list all the passages that speak or many of the passages that speak of, of Christ's cross and we will expound on what those as you just say about the death of Christ and what 
is accomplished. So here's our summary statement this morning. And you see this in your notes broken up. Here's the summary statement. The cross of Christ takes away sin and wrath. And the cross of Christ brings forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation, righteousness, sanctification, healing, humility, and the exaltation of Jesus as the Christ. So first, the cross takes away sin. Think first of all of what what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus in the distance. We have this passage here on the screen. John 129, the very beginning of John's gospel. John, the prophet, sees Jesus in the distance and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when he said that, John didn't yet know exactly what he was saying. He only knew that it was prophesied that that the Messiah would take on himself the sins of the people. He didn't know that Messiah would die to accomplish this purpose. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did. He died. He was, as Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Paul says in Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. And Christ's death takes away our sin. He took our sinful body with him. So our old selves, who we were under Adam, we've talked about that a lot, who we were, that, that totally depraved self, we as rebels against God, we as a people who were in bondage to sin, Jesus died so that through faith in him, we're united to him, crucified with him. And when that happens, the power that sin has over us is destroyed. Sin is taken away. It doesn't mean that we never sin again. It means this, we are enabled to walk in newness of life. We begin life new in Christ. Sin no longer characterizes who we are. Sin is taken away. Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 1 Peter 2.24. So at the cross, our sins are taken away. So is God's wrath. Second point, the cross of Christ takes away wrath. Let's be specific here. The cross of Christ takes away the wrath of God. Let's be even more specific. The cross of Christ takes the wrath of God away from those who are in union with Christ. Those who by faith trust that Christ's death is on their behalf. All right, so before we get into this, Let me just define what we mean by the wrath of God by saying what we don't mean, right? So there's two common errors that we often think of when we're thinking about the wrath of God. The first is to think that the Father is somehow the wrathful one and the Son is the loving one, and so the Son steps in to protect us from the abusive and vengeful Father. That is awful. That that is There are numerous reasons why that's wrong, and I'm just going to mention two here. The first is this, and we've talked about this 
especially at the beginning of this series. The eternal Father and the eternal Son and the, the eternal Spirit, our triune God, is one. That, that means that any thought that the Father has is also a thought of the Son and the Spirit. God is one in essence. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. So, so if God in his perfect justice is wrathful towards our sin, then the Father, Son, and Spirit are all unified in that disposition toward our sin. This is very explicit when we get to Revelation. In Revelation chapter 6, when all the people who have rejected Jesus as king are hiding in caves and in, their, in, their, in the rocks and the mountains, here's what they say in verse 16, Revelation 6, 16. They're, they're crying out to the rocks and the mountains, and they say, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. In the wrath of the Lamb. In their fear of God, their terror, they're calling on the rocks to fall on them so that they will not face the judgment of the one on the throne. And at the same time, they're afraid of the judgment of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. John the Revelator is showing us here that the wrath of the one on the throne and the wrath of the Christ are the same. When Jesus died on the cross, he took on himself God's wrath toward sin. Second thing we need to think about when it comes to God's wrath and the, the, the error that we often make uh, is we need to understand that his wrath is not a, it's not a, a, like a fitful response to a particular situation. That's, how, that's us, right? So as, as humans, when, when something happens that we don't like, we become angry. And if then if that thing stops, then we become calm. And then if something happens that we like, we become happy. We are temporal, affected, emotional beings. God is not like us. God's wrath is not situational. His wrath is not an emotion. God's wrath is his always and forever disposition towards sin. What that means is that he's not sometimes wrathful and sometimes loving. Okay? Think, think of how God reveals himself to Moses. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Same God. He's perfectly merciful. He's perfectly gracious. He's perfectly patient. He's perfectly loving and faithful always and perfectly just always in his righteous Wrath towards sin is always his disposition towards sin. God's wrath towards sin is not contrary to his steadfast love. All that God is, God is perfectly. 
his attributes, this is important, his attributes, when we say his attributes, we mean his love, his wrath, his attributes are not parts of him. They're not, we don't, they're not a part of a whole. They are who God is completely. His attributes are who he is. So, so in what way then does the cross remove God's wrath for those whose trust is in Christ? Now that we've kind of got that settled. Well, God's wrath is towards sin, and Christ became sin for us. That's how God's wrath is removed. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So when Christ became sin for us, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he became cursed for us, as he says in Galatians. He, Christ became the focal point of the wrath of God towards sin. And he took on himself the wrath of God. Romans 5, 8 and 9. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Christ died for us. He died in our place. He took on himself the wrath of God towards sin. Do you, do you see here how God's love and his wrath towards sin are inseparable? I held them up separately, but they're, they're inseparable. God shows his love through a display of his wrath towards sin. Christ's death saves us from the wrath of God. But the death of Christ does not remove the wrath of God for everyone. How do we know that? The Bible says that. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but look, the wrath of God remains on him. The death of Christ does not remove the wrath of God for everyone. Remember, Jesus is the Christ. This, is, this, this whole series is building itself up. We're getting a complete picture of Christianity here. Jesus is the Christ. That means his birth, his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, all proves he's the Christ. That means he's the anointed king. That means he deserves our worship. God commands our worship of him, our obedience of him, our allegiance to him. If we, by the Spirit's power, are born again to believe in him, that means we believe he is the Christ. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. It means to believe he is the Christ. And if we believe he is the Christ, then by definition, because believing he is our King, our Lord, then we obey him. Not perfectly, but incrementally. More and more, more and more as we turn from sin and walk in the Spirit, we, we grow in our obedience and our allegiance to Christ. 
more and more will be characterized by our obedience to Christ. What John is saying here is that if someone is not living in obedience to Christ, if they are characteristically disobedient to Christ, then it's apparent that they don't really believe he's the Christ. They don't really believe that he has died for them to free them from sin. And as a result, God's wrath remains on that person. That's what John's saying. And I say that this morning because, friend, if that's you, if you say you believe in Jesus but you're not living in obedience to him, he's not your Lord. He's not your Messiah. You are living a lie. And that lie is no protection from the wrath of God. To to, to just say, I believe in Jesus, yes, I believe in Jesus, that that is an umbrella in our hurricane. It does you no good to protect you from what's coming. Trusting Christ is more than what you say. It's evidenced by a life of spirit-empowered obedience to him. So if if you want to truly trust Christ, Whose help do we need? We need his, the Spirit's help. Ask the Spirit to give you true faith. Ask the Spirit for a Christ-exalting faith, a faith that is rooted securely in God's work in saving you and that bears the fruit of obedience to Christ. Christ's work on the cross removes our sin and it removes God's wrath toward those who are in Christ. God in his grace towards us, has ordained that that Christ's death would do more than remove sin and wrath. His death brings us tremendous blessing. Our third point is that Christ's death brings forgiveness. Colossians 2, 13-14, And you, us, we, who were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision Of our flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, how? Through the cross. He nailed it to the cross. That's where our forgiveness is. Hebrews 9.22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But Christ did shed his blood, didn't he? Amen? Amen. He is the sacrificial lamb whose death brings to us forgiveness from our sins. And there is a lot more that we could say about forgiveness, but that is one of the lines in the Apostles' Creed. And Josh will preach on that on September 12th. If you want to learn more about the forgiveness of Christ, forgiveness of sins, come September 12th. Number four, though, Christ's death brings redemption. Brings redemption. Now, to be redeemed means we're redeemed from something, doesn't it? The word is often used in the context of slavery. In order to redeem someone from slavery, a ransom price must be paid. The ransom price for us, is Jesus' life. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood. We've been redeemed by, through Christ's ransom payment. Now question, if you're wondering this, I know you are, to whom was the ransom payment paid? Well, it'd be interesting if the ransom price was paid to the devil, but the Bible never says that. It kind of feels like it makes sense, but that's, that's more mythological than it is scriptural. We don't see that in scripture. The Bible tells us two things about what we're redeemed from, about where the payment went. We were redeemed from the curse of the law. We saw this already, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And we're redeemed from lawlessness. Titus 2.14. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's all the Bible says about where that ransom payment went, about what we're redeemed from. But we, we need to see it this way. God wrote the law. It's his law. It's his righteousness. And by our own sin, we're enslaved to the law, that the penalty of the law. And it's God's law that demands death. Christ paid the price for us, and so he ransomed, ransomed us. He redeemed us from that penalty that was on the way. Now, if we've been purchased by God, Here's what I want us to see. All right, so there was a little bit of what we're purchased from. We understand that. We're purchased from the curse of the law, purchased from our lawlessness. And if that's true, and it is true, here's what I want us to see, having been purchased from God. What we need to know is that since we have been purchased by him, we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to him. Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Look what he says. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You've been redeemed so that the, the emphasis on our redemption is not so much what we were redeemed from, but what we were redeemed to how we were purchased. We've been redeemed to God. We now belong to God. We no longer belong to ourselves and our sin. This is why redemption and forgiveness are two different accomplishments of the cross. We're not only forgiven, we're redeemed. If we're only forgiven of our sin, we could continue in our sin. But if we are redeemed from it, and we now belong to God, we need to see that, that God has purchased us by Christ's death so that we would not continue in sin. We've been bought by him. We belong to him so that we would live 
in obedience to him because they're his. Our, our, our joy is now in him. Our joy is no longer in sin. It's one of the characteristics of someone who's been born again. They find their joy in Christ and they sin. They go back to who they were. Feel, feel filthy, dirty. It's, there's no joy in it. There's only regret and sorrow. But when you've been redeemed, you know that your joy is now in Christ. Your satisfaction is now in Christ. And so belonging to Christ, Paul says we glorify him in all that we do. We are to live now in light of the fact that we truly belong to God and not to ourselves. Fifth point, the cross brings reconciliation. Now, when we think about reconciliation, what do we think of? We think of two people who used to be friends, and they got in a fight, and they're both upset with each other, and they need a mutual friend to come between them and sit down so they can talk it out and make everything right. That's reconciliation in an earthly human level, right? That is not what took place when we were reconciled to God through Christ's death. Let me just show you what I mean by that. Colossians 1, 21 through 22. And you, us, you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. I want you to see something there. We were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Which direction were we walking Toward God? No. Away. Doing evil deeds. We were far from him. That's where we were when Christ died. We weren't looking for reconciliation. Our disposition was hostility. But he reconciled us. Reconciliation is something that happened to us. We were passive in this. Christ reconciled us to God by his own death. Look how Paul puts it in Romans 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So verse 10 while we were enemies, we were reconciled. We were not making our way towards the reconciliation table. We were enemies. We were reconciled. It's passive. That's when Christ died. While we were enemies. And then look at verse 11. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We didn't seek it. We didn't ask for it. We received it. We were reconciled. We have been reconciled. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. All this is from when we met with God? No. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Through Christ, God reconciled us to himself. It's past tense. Already been accomplished. 
God did the work, not us. So, so when we think about our reconciliation to God through the cross of Christ, here's how we need to think about it. We didn't come to the table looking for it. There was no diplomacy on our part. We were living as hostile enemies towards God. Think of it like a war. We're still dropping bombs in, in God's territory. And in the midst of that, while we're attacking his kingdom, even when we hated God, God reconciled us to himself through Christ's death. Isn't that amazing? Number six, the cross brings righteousness. The cross is the place of what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. Christ, in his death, takes our sin, he takes the wrath of God toward our sin, and he gives us, in exchange, his righteousness. And because we have his righteousness, now we are justified before God. Romans 5, 17-19. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, here's the good news, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteousness. We receive righteousness at the cross of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In ourselves, church, we have no righteousness. There's no good in us. We can do good stuff sometimes. We can be useful members of society. But we're not righteousness. We're not righteous. Not before a holy God. Paul said in Romans 5.17, death reigning in us. Death ruled us. No righteousness in us. Not without Christ. Being forgiven, we are emptied of sin, but our need is greater than simply to be emptied of sin. Our, our need is greater than the removal of guilt. We need God's own righteousness given to us, imputed to us, added to us in order to be justified before him. And through his death, Christ gives us his righteousness. The cross brings righteousness. Seventh, the cross brings sanctification. The Old Testament talks about our separation from God in many, many, many ways. One of those ways is our sin, our unrighteousness. We need to be made righteous to be in the presence of God. But, but the Old Testament also speaks to great lengths on our, our filth, our, our uncleanness before God. Think of all the, the cleanliness laws in Leviticus. All the washing, all the sprinkling, all the cleansing, all the purifying. Every time 
anybody was going into camp, they had to be purified. Anytime they had to, wanted to approach the tabernacle, they had to be purified, always being cleaned. We are in need of being made clean, being made holy, sanctified. That's the Christian word for it. Christ accomplishes this at the cross. Titus 2.14. Christ gave himself for us. To redeem us from all lawlessness, we saw that, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who were zealous for good works. Purifies us. He gave himself to purify us. See this in Ephesians 5 as well. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Do you see that? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See this in Colossians as well, Colossians 1.21. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to, so the reconciliation happens so that we would be presented as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. All of this is connected, isn't it? You see all these ands, A-N-D, all of the, the conjunctions in all these verses, because so much happened at the cross. Now, to be sanctified means to be washed of our uncleanness and to be made holy. That positional sanctification, that being made holy, has already happened for you and I in Christ. The church, because we belong to Christ's church, the church has been made righteous and clean and holy and blameless by the death of Christ. Number eight, the cross brings healing. We were sinners in need of forgiveness, yes? And we received forgiveness. And we needed righteousness at the cross, and we got righteousness. And we were filthy wretches in need of cleansing. And we've received a cleansing so deep that we've been made brand new. And friends, we were sick and in need of healing. And we have received healing at the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Where's Peter getting that? He's from Isaiah, isn't he? Isaiah 53. This is what Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah who would come. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on them the iniquity of us all. Our sickness is that of, of wandering sheep. We're, we are sheep who are sick. And so we wander away from our shepherd. We don't know what's good for us. We're wandering towards death. As Isaiah says, the reason we do this is 
because our hearts are dull, our ears are heavy, and our eyes are blind. Our sin sickness has impaired us. Sin has made our hearts unresponsive to God. It made our ears deaf to God and our eyes blind to God. So it's not just that we need to have our sin removed. We also need to have the effects of our sin healed so that we would have hearts that trust God, ears that listen to God, and eyes that are fixed on him. And Christ's death accomplishes that work. Christ's death heals us. Number nine, Christ's death brings us humility. Just think back now to everything that the cross has accomplished. And we are only just skimming the surface. There is so much more. But think back to what we have covered that the cross has accomplished. Through the cross of Christ, our sins are taken away. God's wrath is taken away from us. And we're given forgiveness and redemption. We are reconciled. We are made righteous. We are sanctified. We are healed. And we did absolutely nothing to deserve it. Nothing to earn it, nothing to make it happen. Didn't even ask for it. We were totally and completely without any hope in the world. We were dead in our trespasses. We were hostile toward God. We were enemies of God. And that's when Christ died for us. Why did God choose to bring about our salvation in that way? And we know that he did it to display his love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So yes, God's love is on full display at the cross. He shows his love for us at the cross. But why did God choose to do it this way? Why did he choose to save us like this? Because he has shown his love in many ways, hasn't he? 1 Corinthians 1, 22-31 tells us why God did it this way. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast. You see the so that? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So, so why? Why did God send his son to die? Why did he choose a Roman 
torture device, something that only slaves were killed on, something that by, by law Roman citizens could not be killed on because the death was too shameful, something that for, Jew, for, for the Jews was a cursed death. Why was God in Christ so weak, so vulnerable? Why is it that, that according to God's definite plan, he ordained that Jesus would be crucified, that he would die, that he would be buried, so that no one would boast, so that no one could boast? in the presence of God. If, if God was going to save you and me, he had to do it in such a way where we would get zero credit for what took place. Why? Because the problem that we bring to the table is that we're glory thieves. But when Christ died, he died so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In our sin, this is what sin does to us. In our sin, we live for ourselves. If we're, if we're to have any part in securing our salvation, we would take all of the credit. That's what our sin nature does. But God, in his wisdom, would allow no such salvation where the glory is shared. The wisdom of the cross is such that, as, as Jonathan Edwards said, we contribute nothing to our salvation, nothing that is except the sin that necessitated it. The cross of Christ gives us something that we in our sin could never have on our own. The cross of Christ gives us something that if God had saved us in any other way, we wouldn't have. It gives us humility. It brings us low, doesn't it? No one can boast in themselves when they see that the Son of God had to die to save us. No one can boast when we realize how truly depraved we are. No one can boast when we see that God has done all the work. The cross of Christ imparts to us a humility that could only come from God. May every one of us, if we're truly in Christ, may we confess with Paul, Galatians 6, but far be it from me, I pray that this would be our prayer, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And friends, because it is Christ who died to accomplish our salvation, it is Christ who is exalted. That's the tenth accomplishment of the cross. The cross brings the exaltation of Christ. Here's Philippians 2, 8 through 11. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of the cross, because of his obedience, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So 
You should ask, why has God exalted Jesus and given him the name that is above every name? Because he was obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Isaiah 53.10 says, it was the will of God to crush him. Christ obeyed the will of God. He was obedient to death on a cross. And Jesus' death earned him the title, Jesus the Christ, our Messiah. And because Jesus has been named the Christ by God, he has been exalted so that whenever anyone hears the name Jesus, the only response is to bow down and confess he is our Lord. And when we worship Jesus the Christ as our Lord, here's what happens. God the Father is glorified. The Son obeys the Father to the point of death, and in so doing, he takes our sin. He takes God's wrath from us. And we get forgiveness and righteousness, and we are redeemed, and we are reconciled. We're sanctified, and we are healed, and we are joyfully and graciously humbled. And through it all, the Father, through the Spirit, glorifies the Son and commands that in our humility we now praise the Son. Because we're no longer looking for our own glory. We're looking for Christ's glory. And so by the Spirit's power, we praise the Son. And through our praise of the Son, the Father is glorified. And that is the restoration that has begun in Christ. That is what was accomplished at the cross. So let's praise Jesus, our Savior, for his willingness to die for us. Can we? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you.